Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times. With episode 499 of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, getting over is back once again. And boy, oh boy, do we have a show for you. Not one, but two ultimate previews in one episode as the Silver King Adam Silverstein and vintage Chris Vanini we convene to break down NXT No Mercy and AEW Wrestle Dream. I should say the Silver King is going to be breaking down NXT No Mercy and vintage along with the Silver King. We'll be here for AEW Wrestle Dream. As you can tell, we have an absolutely loaded show ahead, so we are not wasting any time off the top. Let me remind you right away that the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast is all about Defy. So please head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Leave those five-star ratings on Apple. Take a little extra time. Leave a five-star written review. If you do, we will read it live right here on the show. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, news, analysis, highlights, all of that good stuff. In addition, though, to all of that good stuff, you get to vote in our pre- and post-show polls both before and after NXT No Mercy and AEW Wrestle Dream this coming Saturday and Sunday. Your votes in those polls will be utilized on our NXT No Mercy and AEW Wrestle Dream instant analysis episodes as we grade the shows. Your input is greatly appreciated, and don't forget, you can tweet us and DM us your questions about what happens at No Mercy and Wrestle Dream on our Twitter account at Getting Overcast. Please also remember that here on this show, I happen to love the number five. And I hope you do as well because for only $5 a month or $50 for the entire year, you can become an official Getting Overhead. Just visit buymeacoffee.com slash getting over, sign up. You get bonus audio, more than you will get this week just because we're doing so many additional episodes of the podcast. But usually, you get bonus audio for the four major shows, WWE, Raw, SmackDown, NXT, and AEW Dynamite. You also get news posts every single week, and your financial contributions directly support the continuation of this podcast. Again, buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. Now, in terms of what is going to go down on today's show and through the remainder of the week, I believe I mentioned on Tuesday's show that we might have something special in store for the 500th episode of the Getting Over Wrestling podcast. Well, those plans fell through, but new plans arose, and we will have a special 500th edition of Getting Over this coming Thursday. This episode right here, you may be listening to it on Thursday. We are posting it Wednesday night, so we're going to create some space between the two shows. But a 500th episode spectacular is coming your way before the week is out. Then Saturday night, as soon as NXT No Mercy goes off the air, we will have an instant analysis podcast right in your feed. And then Sunday, as soon as AEW Wrestle Dream goes off the air, we will have another instant analysis podcast for your ear holes right in our feed. That's right. It is officially a five episode week here on the Getting Over Wrestling podcast. And what's pretty fun is I got some word about some things in the pipeline for next week. Next week, we're delivering you a four episode week here on the Getting Over Wrestling podcast. So we thought things were slowing down. 
They are not, but great content still to come. You do not want to miss all of these shows coming up. In terms of the way we are going to break it down on this episode, I'm going to kick things off with NXT, largely because Vintage Chris Vanini will be joining me later in the show for that Wrestle Dream Ultimate Preview. So I'm going to break down what happened on NXT and then separately give you an NXT No Mercy Ultimate Preview covering everything that led into that premium live event. So the go-home moments from NXT on Tuesday. And then same thing with AEW. We'll just discuss everything that happened on AEW that does not directly have to do with Wrestle Dream. And then we will do the Wrestle Dream Ultimate Preview at the end of the show. There will be timestamps in the episode description. So if you only follow one brand or the other, you only want to listen to one or the other, or maybe you're just joining us Saturday or Sunday right before one of the big shows, all you need to do is hit the episode description, find the timestamp and jump around. As always though, I hope you listen to the entire show. As promised, let's kick it off with NXT. Uh, Everything that happened Tuesday night, that does not directly have to do with No Mercy. Eddie Thorpe fought Dijak in a strap match. Dijak hit hard justice during the break. Then he maintained a neck choke as they fell through the ropes with a choke slam on the ring apron. Dijak tied Thorpe in the strap in front of his family and his little niece thinks she was six. Beat him with the strap. The little girl started crying and he just screamed in her face. Dijak pulled off his belt, but Thorpe fought back with the strap, punched Dijak with his own belt, dragged him into the corner for an elbow drop, and he got the win. After the bell, Dijak pulled Thorpe off the top rope as he was celebrating and hit Feast Your Eyes. Then he tied Thorpe's legs in a tree of woe, taunted the family some more, and beat him with the belt until referees pushed him backstage. So look, Brian Danielson versus Ricky Starks, this was not, okay? It was a fine strap match. The guys definitely slapped the shit out of each other with the strap at times. It was mostly boring, at least the first half, until the family got involved. Once that happened, the heel work from Dijak turned it around, grabbed my attention. This was the best part of the feud to date, but it's still not exactly hitting for me. Given there's gonna be another match, maybe this was the start of me beginning to care about it. The niece deserves a lot of credit. Like I said, six years old, she cried pretty much on cue, even though I don't think it was acting by any means. And I also got to give credit to Dijak, who sent this tweet after the show. So basically, the long and short of it is that WWE sent a tweet uh, quoting him saying, that's for you, kiddo, which is what he said before he beat the crap out of Thorpe right in front of this six-year-old girl. So Dijak tweets, I said Kyo, not kiddo. Her name is Kyoko. I did my homework because I wanted to make it personal and be sure that she fully understood that this was exclusively her fault. That is good heel work right there. Good stuff from Dijak. Uh, Gigi Dolan fought Blair Davenport, or at least was supposed to fight Blair Davenport. Blair backstage talked shit, saying Gigi tried to blindside her last week, but can't match her viciousness. When Dolan was training later, the lights went off in the room, and Davenport laid her out. That led to the match being canceled. My guess is the show was overbooked, and they needed to cut something, but maybe it's part of the storyline. I don't know. Didn't really do much of anything. Uh, Duke Hudson told Andre Chase backstage that Thea Hale was communicating more than she had been recently since kind of walking out on them. So he thought that she was going to get back to normal. JC Jane came up. She was kind of taunting them a little bit when Thea Hale entered the picture looking, well, how do I put this? Look good, but she's got me saying, hey now. So the guys freaked out at first, kind of like a father and a brother would. But then Chase realized he had to keep a cool head. If he criticized her, he would drive her away. So he's like, hey, you look great. And I can't wait to see what your ring gear looks like. Well, the ring gear, hey now, uh, to that as well. 
It was basically like a mock garter look with fishnets. She was wearing all black. Obvious JC influence, that was the point. So we had Thea Hale against Danny Palmer. The Chase U theme played, but JC cut it off. Thea got a new, somewhat generic girl rock theme with fire graphics. So it was a totally fresh presentation. Uh, Palmer flashed her athleticism. Hale won after a few minutes with a Kimura lock. JC then hugged Thea and taunted the Chase U guys who were watching from the crow's nest. This did accomplish the goal of refreshing Thea, and that's kind of the key. Danny continues to seem like she has a high ceiling, but do I have much of a takeaway in terms of the Chase U storyline or what's happening with Thea going forward? Not really. My assumption is that JC is going to keep corrupting her until she realizes it's the wrong path. They'll feud, and then she'll go back to Chase U. I mean, I can't imagine it being anything other than that. There was also a new vignette for a wrestler uh, flipping in old tube TV between local news of Bengals game and WCW Saturday night. I believe the only hints of anything really were the arm holding the remote control was lighter skinned and it looked like the person was wearing a pretty infamous shirt, perhaps of a bangled tiger, uh, but it was blurred out. If you put the pieces together though, it was clearly the first tease for Brian Pillman Jr., who was just signed a couple weeks ago. Definitely excited to see him in NXT and I truly wonder what exactly they are going to do with him. Is he going to keep his name? Is he going to keep the look with that, you know, mohawk mullet or whatever he was doing? It really wasn't working, but, you know, we'll see if NXT refreshes him beyond in-ring, if the presentation changes as well. So that was really it from NXT that did not directly have to do with No Mercy. So on that note, let's go ahead and get right into the NXT No Mercy Ultimate Preview. We're going to go ahead and break down every single match on the card along with the go-home moments from NXT on Tuesday night. And then at the very end, I will give you a pre-show expectation grade. I repeat, follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. You'll be able to give us your own pre-show grade about an hour before NXT No Mercy begins, then a post-show grade at the end, and we compare and contrast them to each other. That's the whole point of doing it. So the Heritage Cup is going to be on the line. Noam Dar against an opponent to be determined. The final of the Heritage Cup Invitational was Butch of England against Joe Coffey of Scotland. Butch worked the arm and moonsaulted all three Gallus boys at ringside before hitting a rebound German suplex. They got mad, so the referee ejected them. Butch did 20 beats, ate a Glasgow kiss, then came back with a DDT on the ring apron. Coffey came back with a double jump crossbody and Glasgow sendoff. Butch blocked all the best for the bells twice, but ate a third attempt with no cover. Coffey countered an armbar into a powerbomb and hit Glasgow sendoff plus all the best for the bells for a false finish. Butch dodged a Glasgow sendoff into the steel steps and hit bitter end for the one, two, three to advance. Damn good match. 3.75 stars, B+. Butch was obviously the right winner to put a big name on the No Mercy card, but Coffey did get a chance to shine doing pretty much everything he possibly could against a main roster talent. Coffey and Gallus, their ceiling is just really not that high. Unless they get mixed with the brawling brutes and they create this like super European, you know, brawling dude faction, I don't really see them going to the main roster at any point, but they are really good hands for NXT. There's no question about that. It does seem like Tyler Bate is going to serve as Butch's second for the Heritage Cup match. Oro Mensa will presumably hold that role for Dar. Now, in terms of a prediction for the match, you know, the vast majority of the time when someone from the main roster comes to NXT and does an excursion, it's temporary. They don't necessarily win a title and stay down there. However, that has definitely changed over the last couple of years. Uh, we saw Dolph Ziggler do it. We saw New Day do it. And of course, right now, Dominic Mysterio and Becky Lynch. So, it does stand to reason that it's possible for Butch to come into this match and win the Heritage Cup. I don't know whether he lives in Orlando. I presume he does, 
But you would think that given the fact that he's going to be touring, uh, he does house shows. He's, of course, still on SmackDown. Having Butch go back and forth, unless there is a plan with him down there, doesn't necessarily make the much most sense. And unlike Becky Lynch and New Day and Dominic Mysterio, Butch doesn't really move the needle. And that's not me criticizing him at all. It's just saying that's his station right now on the WWE main roster. So it is my belief he will not win and Noam Dar will retain the Heritage Cup. There's plenty of people that Dar can go after. Uh, Tyler Bate being one of them. There's Dragon Lee still. I think he's scheduled for a different program. Obviously, Axiom. There's plenty of people is my point. I don't think that Butch takes it here. So Noam Dar retains the Heritage Cup in this match. Uh, let's move to the Tag Team Championship. D'Angelo family against a team, or teams perhaps, to be determined. Uh, Out the Mud fought Hank and Tank on NXT. Now we know what OTM means. Scripps distracted late with the heels hitting what I would call an assisted inverted Alabama slam, for lack of a better explanation. They all talk shit directly into the camera after the bell. It was a fine showing. Hank and Tank were actually more impressive, but they're also more experienced. It's all I really got for this. So D'Angelo family was at a dinner table in their Italian restaurant, ready to welcome everyone for a meal so they could decide who would challenge them for the NXT titles. Umberto Carrillo and Angel Garza were first to sit. Tony D'Angelo asked about the new um, claw marks on their body. They said their tattoos honoring their grandfather. I truly hope it's just paint that they're going to put on every week because if those are tattoos, yikes. Uh, the Creed brothers came in actually wanting to eat. Then everyone found out OTM was OTW on the way. Uh, once they showed up, Brutus was straight hungry. He was focused on the food. The rest of them argued over getting the title match. OTM was planning to tear up the place if they didn't get their opportunity. So Tony snapped his fingers. Some muscle came out. One dude looked like Ronnie Munn from the Howard Stern show. Uh, D'Angelo said it was a high risk move, but he was down for a fatal four-way match with all of them involved. Then they all toasted with four of them drinking wine, the Creed's drinking milk and OTM not drinking anything. This was beyond corny. It was back to like the D-level movie stuff. We got back in the day in the Legato del Fantasma feud. I'm excited for the match, but the build was extremely weak. There's really no storyline here. It's been three weeks or so of D'Angelo family basically saying, I wonder who's going to fight us, who's going to step up. And no one stepped up. It's the same teams just all fighting them instead of them picking one. It was multiple weeks of, you know, the tease of they would pick someone and ultimately they did not. So it is, let's repeat, D'Angelo family, Curio and Garza, the Creed brothers and OTM all in this match. You know, D'Angelo family just won these titles. Now they could be transitional champions and it would make a lot of sense if they want to strap up Curio and Garza, who all of you who listen to the show know, I believe they need to be champions as soon as possible to totally refresh their characters, you know, get new stuff together in the ring and just totally show out to the point that they can get called up to the main roster again and put back in rotation over there. Uh, but they need that type of development, which includes when you're champion, you get more promo time and more ring time than you would otherwise get. So th if I was booking it, I would have them win the titles. I would make D'Angelo family be transitional champions. D'Angelo family is not even, it doesn't feel like a real tag team even, uh, but they are the champions right now. But because they just won the titles, and I believe this is only their second defense and the first one on a big show, I have to assume they retain and pin one of the OTM guys to get it done. So that's the prediction. Uh, Baron Corbin is going to fight Braun Breaker. 
Corbin fought Josh Briggs on NXT. Corbin, of course, won with End of Days in a few minutes. This was the second time on NXT we had one of those AEW-style matches that was only booked to create a reason for a post-match segment. Corbin talked some shit after the bell. Breaker attacked, and there was a multi-attempt pull-apart brawl with about a dozen security folks. Corbin, later in the show, talked shit backstage. I think it was to an interviewer. So Breaker attacked him again for another pull-apart brawl. And then right before NXT went off the air, like after the main event segment, they were found brawling in the NXT parking lot. Braun threw Corbin into the side of an SUV, which put a huge dent in the panel. Then he tried spearing Corbin, but Baron dodged, and Braun went right into an open door. Corbin gave him a low blow on the car hood, then choke slammed him onto the roof, only for Braun, like 15 seconds later, to sit up like he was the Undertaker. He sat up and stood there and like looked around. I was like, this is hysterical. Then the fight continued backstage. Uh, there was a fire extinguisher got thrown, and the guys busted through a wall that happened to be a temporary wall, clearly, into Shawn Michaels' office. And Michaels is crazy, and officials storm in and try to break him up, and NXT goes off the air. So the note I wrote after the first two segments was that this added absolutely nothing to the match build. And then we got the final segment to close NXT, and my take completely changed. This was not only fun, it was actually hysterical. Breakers sitting up like Taker on the car roof fully sent me. It got a real LOL. Corbin chucking a fire extinguisher almost right into the camera. That was great. Braun sounding exactly like Scott Steiner yelling, where are you going, bitch? And then the guys busting through the wall like the Kool-Aid man with HBK sitting there surprised. Huge William Regal vibes like old school NXT. It does feel like this match should have a stipulation now. You know, just doing a singles match after all of this doesn't make sense. So I presume they will announce a stipulation at some point before the end of the week maybe Saturday before the show on the on the kickoff show. Falls count anywhere makes the most sense. As of the time we're recording this, nothing has been announced yet, but I could see that happening. Either way, they took a match I did not care about and somehow actually cared less about as the show progressed and did something in the final segment that actually got me hyped leading into the show. So that is nothing but successful and you gotta give credit where it's due when something like that happens. That was a good one, yeah. So in terms of a prediction for the match, look, Corbin is down there to kind of level up some of these guys and Breaker is the person down there who is, they're trying to get him away from the NXT title picture. So he needs competition against other wrestlers. It makes the most sense, of course, for Corbin to be in a feud with Breaker, which is what they did here. In terms of the winner, uh, you know, there's an argument to be made for Corbin winning to have Breaker continuing to fight to get over on this guy. But the way Braun is booked in NXT is pretty much he wins every single thing unless there's a title on the line. And when there's a title on the line, he still wins 75% of the time. So I have Braun Breaker defeating Baron Corbin in this match. It certainly won't hurt Corbin at all, but I do want to see Corbin get developed beyond just now I'm burning the ships and that's my gimmick, which is it's the same dude. There's nothing different about him from a gimmick or a character standpoint. Really, the gimmick is lack of gimmick. So what I want to see is Baron Corbin turn babyface. And I thought he had an opportunity to do it here, maybe based on the way this match transpires. He actually does turn face, but they had a moment in the confrontation that started this feud. They didn't do it. That was disappointing. We'll see what happens on Saturday. The North American Championship will be on the line in what was scheduled to be Dominic Mysterio against Mustafa Ali, except Ali got released. 
after he multiple times asked for his release. So, you know, it was mutual is basically what I'm trying to say. So on NXT, Dom backstage was excited to relax on Saturday, eating chicken nuggies with Rhea Ripley, only to be informed he actually would be defending the title at the show against the winner of a triple threat. He got furious that Adam Pearce and Shawn Michaels kept disrespecting him, and then he stormed off. It was a nice piece of storyline given the pretty unfortunate situation of Dom losing Ali as the opponent, but I digress. So first, before that happened, uh, Trick Williams fought Joe Gacy. Trick countered the handspring discus lariat with a really quick pump knee out of nowhere for a sudden finish. Williams did an interview after the match. He quoted Ludacris. He got asked about Carmelo Hayes and Ilya Dragunov, but said he didn't like being asked about another man after he just got the most important win of his career. He answered the question anyway, though, saying Melo would retain the title. And then after thinking about it, with Melo already having a championship, Trick decided it's time for me to get my own. He later took a deep breath and walked into Shawn Michaels' office. We always talk about Trick being a great promo for his age and experience level. This was by far the most serious and believable he has come across to date. A large part of that was the fact that he slowed down and took his time talking. That is so important and often overlooked by young talent when it comes to cutting promos. Back when I was in high school, I spent a couple days at Dusty Rhodes Wrestling School in South Florida. No, I was not trained by Dusty Rhodes. That's not what I'm saying. I did a video production uh, assignment for a class, and he let us come in and tape some of the stuff uh, that he did with some of the trainees. I, I really should go back and look at it and see if there was anyone of note that actually trained there. I haven't thought about this in a long time, but I vividly remember one of his main lessons during promo class being slow down. And even if you think you are speaking slow enough, you're not because there's a television audience and a crowd that needs to hear every one of your words. Trick Williams has been a victim of not slowing down, speaking too quickly, not fully getting his point across because his brain is working so quick. Um, but here, again, massive improvement. This is what Dusty would have wanted if he was coaching Trick, saying, here is how to do promos. Some people, <coughs> Charlotte Flair, <coughs> take it to the extreme. But Liv Morgan and Ricochet are actually a couple wrestlers who have improved their promos by learning to slow down. So I just wanted to kind of mention that, but again, impressed with what Trick Williams did here. So we had that triple threat match scheduled, Dragon Lee, Axiom, and Tyler Bate. Backstage before the match, Axiom and Bate were chatting when Trick Williams walked into the locker room, letting them know respectfully the triple threat had become a fatal four-way. Trick was later amped up trying to celebrate the opportunity with Mello, but he had his head down in his phone, presumably reading over the contract he was about to sign. Williams was obviously bothered by that, but understood that that segment was still to come. This was obviously the direction they were going, Trick being added to the match, but it hit well. It also explains why the Gacy match was so ridiculously short, despite it actually having some storyline build. So they did a four-way submission attempt early. Trick did a double Uranagi on Dragon and Bait. Then Bait somehow did a double spin his style with Dragon and a Cesaro-style spin with Axiom, like simultaneously. Trick ate the rebound lariat from Bait, only for Axiom to jump off Bait's back on the cover for a Canadian destroyer on Dragon. Then Dragon went on a big highlight run, only to eat an avalanche Spanish fly for a 2.9 arm raise false finish. Dragon hit Destino on Axiom, but Trick broke the fall. Dragon then headbutted Trick, which knocked Dragon out. 
As Trick fell backwards, he collided with Bate, who was on the ring apron. And then Williams bounced off the ropes and fell forward onto Axiom for the one, two, three in a finish that surprised even him. Trick later found Mello backstage. They made good with Hayes dapping him up, happy for his friend. Even later, Dom talked some shit about Dragon and got punched. And then right before NXT ended, Vic Joseph announced that Dragon would be the special guest referee for the match per Shawn Michaels. First of all, what an effing great finish to a fantastic match. Dragon Lee and Axiom were basically playing Street Fighter here. Bate was the fulcrum working equally as well with them and Trick. And of course, Williams towered over the other three. The booking of Williams getting in the match late and winning in a way that didn't hurt anyone was so smart and inventive. And when you consider that none of this was planned and all of it was a pivot from Ali, you really could not have asked for more Tuesday night. I sent a tweet that Shawn Michaels was cooking with grease when it came to booking Trick Williams on Tuesday. That might be an understatement. This is one of the best individual show storylines that HBK has cooked up. And the fact that Trick was the beneficiary of it, that was awesome. I went 4.25 stars and an A for this match, by the way. Now, in terms of a prediction, one has to wonder what was going to happen in the Dom Ali match. Given Ali was a special guest referee before, I bet Dragon was planned for this role no matter what. Coming out of Raw on Monday, and obviously I've thought this for a while and I've shared this opinion multiple times, it still seemed to me like Dragon ultimately beating Dom for the title is the plan. But the quick elevation of Trick here, when they could have easily just gone with Bait or Axiom or anyone else, if they were gonna hold off the title change for Dragon, that made me think there might actually be a change because the crowd was straight up on fire for Trick. Then again, the rep boost that he got might not be for him to win the North American title. It might be to get him ready for a future match with Mello. So this is the prediction. If Rhea Ripley is there alongside Dom, then I have to believe he retains. Even with Dragon as referee, he could just not see some cheating happen and count anyway because he's a babyface and it's his job. If Ripley or someone from Judgment Day is not there, then I do think Trick Williams winning becomes far more plausible, although Dom could still cheat with a low blow or numerous, he could grab a weapon. There's a number of ways, of course, he could do it. You know, on this show, with the number of title matches, including the Heritage Cup on the line, I believe there is five being defended in total. One of them should definitely change. And now that I'm thinking back on it, because I'm going to give you my predictions for the other two matches coming up here in a moment, maybe it's the tag team titles that change or the Heritage Cup. And they do bring Butch over uh, to NXT because I just got to tell you, I I don't really think they're going to have Dom lose the title to Trick when he can lose it to Dragon Lee and get him over. The only way that Dom is losing to Trick is if Dragon Lee is fully getting called up to the main roster. And if that's happening, it makes all the sense in the world. But if Dragon Lee is going to remain in NXT, he really should be the one to take the North American title off Dom. He can hold it for three, four, five months, maybe lose it at NXT Stand and Deliver, and then debut on the main roster after WrestleMania. That's how I would book it. So I'm going to go with Dom retaining the title here. And there's another reason for that coming up right now. NXT Championship Carmelo Hayes against Ilya Dragunov. So Hayes and Dragunov, they sat down for a contract signing. They repeated much of what they already have said in their feud. Melo said being NXT champion is not about how much pain you can endure, but about how undeniably him the champion needs to be. 
He ran down some guys Dragunov has defeated, saying he's not like them, and then he accidentally threw shade at Trick while doing so. Ilya signed and slammed the contract down, screaming in his face. Then Melo signed, got in Dragunov's face, and said he was fighting not just for himself, but people who look like him. And then it basically just ended in a stare down. I did not like this segment. Uh, I am a huge fan of 99% of what Melo does and 99% of what Ilya does. There was something about this that just felt completely unnecessary. There is an extensive NXT history where the men's main event is not on the go-home show. They maybe will do a video package, but they don't have an in-ring segment or matches or anything like that. And I used to criticize it all the time because the idea is how could you do a go-home show for a premium live event and not put the potential main event of the show on your go-home show? But if there is no further storyline to develop, then maybe it's for the best to not have those people on the show. In this case, I would have much preferred a video promo package from both of these guys to promote the match, and that's it. Because this segment, for me, did not do much of anything. Now, in terms of who's going to win, there are two different ways to look at this, and both, for me, involve Trick Williams. Because it seems pretty clear, even though they've been separated, and even though they said, hey, we're still best friends, we have each other's back, but here, you know, in the Performance Center, in NXT, we're going to do our own thing, Right. There's two ways to look at this. One is Trick Williams comes down at some point late in the match, trying to help Melo, ends up costing him the title, Dragunov wins, and Melo and Hayes feud out of anger and frustration. And then at the end of whatever match they have, they come together and are friends again. The other way to do it is there's nothing happening with Trick. He does not get involved at all here. And uh, Melo beats Ilya. And then you have Williams, who has lost his North American championship opportunity, but knows that Mello accidentally threw shade at him, says, hey, man, you know, I I proved myself. I almost won the North American title. I deserve a shot at your strap. And they begin a feud, and ultimately, Mello fights Trick and defends against him. I think one way or another, we're getting Mello and Trick at some point soon. The question is whether the title change happens preceding that. For me, I don't really know what putting the NXT title on Dragunov accomplishes. He is and has been main roster ready, more so by a mile than Braun Breaker or anyone else who we talk about, oh, if they lose this match, they're going to get called up. Dragunov is fully ready to be on Raw or SmackDown. Unless there is some belief that with him being Russian and having the gimmick that he has that it's not going to translate... That would be the only reason to keep him in NXT. It would be the only reason to strap him up with the title. In this particular case, Melo's still kind of just getting started on his reign. I mean, he won the championship in April. He had to defend it against Braun Breaker uh, a month or two months later just to kind of confirm that he's truly the NXT champion. So you're looking at like May or June where he's like firmly entrenched as this champion. He's had a very small window of feuds. I'm not suggesting he needs to hold it all the way to stand and deliver and that every NXT champion needs to hold the strap for a year. It just seems too soon for me to make the change. And if Melo beat Ilya with Trick's help and then loses to him without that help, that what does that say? It says he can't live up to the guy and, and you want him to be able to live up to Dragunov. So I think it's a spot where Melo gets made, Dragunov takes the L, and then something with Trick develops after the fact. But again, the way that that could be excused from a storytelling standpoint would be Trick coming down to help, actually costing him the title this time, 
And then they fight a non-title situation. Maybe Melo goes back after Ilya, you know, three months from now, wins the title back, and then Dragunov goes to the main roster. So there's just different ways you can do it. But for me, title retention makes the most sense. And lastly, what I expect to be the main event of the show, the NXT Women's Championship on the line, Becky Lynch against Tiffany Stratton in an Extreme Rules match. Now, look, I understand that Melo and Dragunov is probably going to be a special match and maybe the match of the night from an in-ring standpoint. I just don't see how you put Becky on NXT and see the ratings that she's delivering. NXT, not this past week, but the two prior weeks, was over 800,000 viewers. This week, without Becky, it was like 630,000. That is how much she is drawing on this third show. So let's not get that twisted. Um, I don't see how you see Becky as that kind of draw and then don't put her in the main event. Also, it would be immensely refreshing for there to be a women's main event of an NXT show. The only thing preventing me from saying it's 100% gonna be the case is what I mentioned with Mello and Trick. You could possibly have Trick wrestle the opening match for the North American Championship, lose, and then have some impact in the main event, which would be Mello and Dragunov. I digress, let me get back to this match. Anyway, we got a video package with some short taped promos, really nothing worth talking about here, which just brings us to the prediction for the match. And yes, they could do a quick change. I get it. But Becky's out here doing open challenges for the NXT Women's Championship on Raw. There's a line of potential challengers for her still in NXT. I hate the idea of giving the title to Becky and then four weeks later, flipping it right back to Tiffany. I also don't necessarily think Stratton should be beating Lynch. That doesn't compute to me. I'd much rather Becky eventually lose it in a multi-person match. And I think that's probably what they will do at the end of the day where she doesn't get pinned and ultimately loses the trap because someone else gets pinned. And then those two people go on and feud. So I have Becky Lynch retaining the title here. I kind of think it's a no brainer. It would probably be my most surprising result on the entire show. If Becky winds up losing the title and Tiffany ends up taking it coming out of NXT. So I wish I had more to give you on the main event, but I think it's just cut and dried. So with that, let's get to our NXT No Mercy pre-show expectation grade. And because Chris is not here yet, the Silver King is running solo. I am the first and only, or as Ricochet would say, I'm the one and only uh, to give you my pre-show expectation grade. What I find impressive about this NXT No Mercy card is there's truly something for everyone. You have technical wrestling with Noam Dar and Butch. You have four different tag teams all competing uh, for that title against the D'Angelo family, three against the D'Angelo family. You have some big meaty men slapping meat. <laughs> big meaty men slapping meat. <laughs> that's what I want. We always want to see that. Baron Corbin and Braun Breaker, that's going to be interesting. Trick Williams, uh, young talent, developmental talent, getting a spotlight against Dominic Mysterio, who just put on a show against Dragon Lee. And then you have your co-main event of bangers, uh, Carmelo Hayes, and Ilya Dragunov, and Becky Lynch, and Tiffany Stratton. So I'm actually ridiculously excited for NXT No Mercy, more so than I am most NXT premium live events. NXT has also been delivering on these. The last two, you can make an argument, are the best two that they have put forward since that, you know, temporary, let's call it, transition to 2.0 a few years ago. Obviously, now it's white and gold. It's a little bit different. But I think the last two have been the best two that they've put on. And I think this is gonna come pretty damn close to that. So I'm going in with a pre-show expectation grade of A minus, low A minus, probably a 90 out of 100. But I do think that the card is strong enough 
for it to eclipse that B-plus barrier that we find ourselves grading so many pay-per-views and premium live events. I'm very much excited for NXT. It's going to be really interesting to have NXT head-to-head with uh, AEW Collision on Saturday night, and then there's Collision, of course, and then Wrestle Dream on Sunday immediately after that. That makes the ultimate preview we're about to do for Wrestle Dream a little bit wonky because we may miss some stuff from Collision. But nevertheless, uh, you know, they're going to go head to head this week. The Wrestle Dream card is extremely strong. Very curious to see which show ends up being better coming out of the weekend. But going into NXT, uh, No Mercy, as you can tell, I am very enthusiastic and very optimistic that they will deliver a strong show. Wrapping up the NXT portion of this episode allows us to now move into AEW, where we're going to talk about everything that happened across Collision, Rampage, and Dynamite, and then we will give you the AEW Wrestle Dream Ultimate Preview. Now, in terms of this opening part here, the, the things that did not directly factor into Wrestle Dream, normally I just mix everything up. I do Dynamite, Collision, and Rampage. I, I throw it all together. Uh, but we are taping this show in two parts. And because of that, what I'm going to do is break down Collision and Rampage right off the top. Any extraneous stuff from Dynamite is going to come next. And then Vintage Chris Vanini will join for the AEW Wrestle Dream Ultimate Preview. So on Collision, we had Brian Danielson against Ricky Starks in a Texas death match. Starks did a springboard splash outside where he missed Danielson and landed on like two security guards who were for some reason standing by the barricade to catch him. Also hit like three fans. Ricky then completely missed what was supposed to be a chair shot on Brian's foot into the ring post. Danielson bladed and came back with some great chair shots, so Starks bit his wound, but Brian hit a spider suplex. Starks choked Danielson out with a chain, but he stood at eight, so Ricky choked him over his back, but Brian used the turnbuckles to counter out, and he made him tap out with the label lock. Then he wrapped the chain around Starks' neck until he passed out, but he came to. Danielson hit the psycho knee through a chair, then kicked his fucking head in. Uh, He wrapped the chain around his knee and used that finally for the psycho knee to get the 10 count. It looked like Starks wanted to shake Danielson's hand after the bell with Big Bill helping him up, but Wheeler Yuta prevented it. Excellent, as you would expect coming out of a strap match. And just given the abilities of these two, 4.25 stars and an A, obviously the right winner given Danielson is in what may be the main event of Wrestle Dream. Not ideal for Starks to lose twice, but there's really no shame in getting beat by Brian. I found it weird from the onset that they ran this match back with a similarly hardcore stipulation rather than just doing a pure wrestling match. I guess the idea was to protect Ricky, but again, not sure why the rematch was needed at all, really. That said, if you're going to give me a 20-minute main event with these guys, I'm not really complaining. On collision, Andrade Alidolo fought Jay White. Andrade hit a moonsault outside and a double moonsault inside. Then he hit a running Meteora and the Hammerlock DDT, but Juice Robinson got Jay's foot on the ropes. Andrade got up into the figure eight. But Bullet Club Gold distracted and interfered. Juice smacked him in the face with a plaque or something, while White dragged Andrade up to his feet for Blade Runner and the win. I went 3.75 stars B+. Great wrestling throughout. It seems like this is kicking off maybe faction warfare with La Fashion and Gobernable uh, eventually coming back and getting Andrade's back. As of right now, they're not back. So I presume we will see something involving them this coming Saturday on Collision. On Rampage, there was an ROH six-man tag team match, Mogul Embassy against the Hung Bucks. Hangman Page had a great draping shooting star press off the apron early. Swerve Strickland came out to distract, changing the momentum of the match. Much later, Hangman then countered Brian Cage off the ropes into a Hurricanrana. Cage blocked a Melter Driver attempt with the heels, then hitting a triple fireman's carry. Hangman hit a double buckshot lariat on the other dudes and Deadeye on Cage for a false finish. 
Then he tried buckshot on cage, except Swerve walked down the ramp to the apron. It was basically level. And he got in his face. That distracted, allowing Cage to hit a discus lariat, but Page countered Drill Claw into a rolling pinfall for the title change. One problem. Hangman's foot was 100% under Cage's shoulder on the pinfall. He only had one shoulder down. The pinfall should not have counted, and the title change should not have happened. Straight up. It's just the truth. Not a technicality. It wasn't even close. Guess who the referee was? You know it before I say it. Rick Knox. Other than the completely botched finish that was not called, this was fun. 3.5 stars and a B. Unexpected title change that definitely creates some interest. One really needs to wonder what Tony Khan is doing with these ROH title changes. Either the goal is to get a ton of eyes on ROH and get people subscribing to the streaming platform. Maybe as of now, subscriptions and viewership is not sustainable. Or perhaps they're going to be doing a pay-per-view coming up where they merge many of these titles together. But the vast majority now of the ROH champions are not just AEW talent, but top tier AEW talent. In fact, now that I'm thinking about it, I think all of them are. So it's definitely a really curious development because there was no storyline need to change the titles in this situation. And the Young Bucks are going to be competing for a number one contendership for the AEW titles on WrestleDream. But they just won a six-man title here. So again... Confusing to some degree, intriguing to another degree. On Rampage, the trios titles were on the line. Talk about confusing. There's an ROH six-man and an AEW trios. The acclaimed in Billy Gunn against Dark Order. Max Caster got leveled by Evil Uno with a title for a two-count. Caster stopped the Dark Order combo with Famouser. Then acclaimed hit a new combined finisher on Alex Reynolds. Basically like a magic killer setup into a toss driver. It was too long, or it took too long, I should say, to get into position compared to their normal finish but I appreciated them trying something different. Maybe it can be a setup move going forward. It did seem like Dark Order got dispatched a little bit too easily for a team that looked like it was being rebuilt, but such is life for Dark Order. Also, kind of strange, like I said, to get two six-man title matches on a single show, but this goes back to what we talked about earlier uh, on the Tuesday episode of our podcast about AEW featuring far too many championships. On Collision, Hook and Rob Van Dam fought Daddy Magic and Angela Parker. This actually got two segments. Jake Hager tried to get involved, but he ate a Van Daminator. Parker took Red Rum and Magic ate the five-star frog splash for the babyface win. It's great to see RVD still being able to go like this. The dye job on his hair, though. That needs some work. It was way too dark. It was also really fun to see him team with Taz's son. On Rampage, Mike Santana fought Bronson. Santana got another promo package promising to get his because he's fought through so much adversity already. He said they need to fight him or fire him and people would either get down or lay down. Santana squashed Bronson with a double underhook front slam. Ortiz confronted Santana on the ramp after the bell, asking if he's ready to talk yet. On collision, Ortiz said Santana talked a lot of shit on TV and on Twitter, but ran from him when they were face to face. I guess they made up in real life. I appreciate AEW trying with Santana. I am not buying it. I'm selling it. Ortiz, He's definitely the better of the two and he's more believable, but my interest in a work shoot feud between these two guys who up until recently were off TV for what felt like a year, it is immensely minimal. On Collision, CJ, that's what Lana is going by, just her first name. She was backstage saying Miro has lost his way and she just wants to help him. He walked up saying CJ was his temptation, but CJ's temptation was the lights and cameras, the glitz and the glamour. Miro said if she strays, he'll have to do something. He didn't really clarify it. CJ said they should take separate paths, but if he truly loves her, he should not lay a hand 
on any of her future clients. And obviously that angered Miro. I feel like this is a conversation they could have just had in the home they share together and have seen each other in for the last two weeks. I will say though, CJ being herself is so much better than any version of the Lana gimmick. It's almost strange to hear her sound like a completely normal person with no accent and no lines written for her. She's better than what WWE ever gave her. We always knew that, but she's starting to show it here. Do I care much about the storyline? No, but I do think there's a chance they make me care. We're just gonna have to see in the future. On Dynamite, we had an international championship match, Ray Phoenix defending against Jeff Jarrett. This opened the show with Phoenix dominating and taking out everyone from Jarrett's crew. Aubrey Edwards got into it with Karen Jarrett for the dozenth time. Phoenix got his foot on the bottom rope to break a fall. Then he countered a figure four leg lock with a small package to retain the title. So Phoenix only beat John Moxley in reality because of a concussion. Then he wins his first of what may only be what, a few title defenses maybe by using a small package against J-E-double-F-J-A-double-R-E-double-T. That's double J of all people. Uh, Phoenix can't beat him with a finisher. He can't look strong. It is wild to me how the Lucha Brothers never get good booking as singles, even now with Phoenix as champion. So frustrating. Also on Dynamite, Nick Jackson, Brian Cage, and Claudio Castagnoli fought in a number one contendership match for the international title. So after Jarrett got a title match without earning it at all, these guys had to fight one another on the same show to win a number one contendership. Just like think about that for a minute. There was a nice counter sequence outside. Cage caught Nick flying for basically an F5, then hit an inside out vertical suplex on Claudio from the bottom rope over the ropes inside, great spot. Claudio then hit the Ricola bomb on Cage, but Claudio turned around for some reason and took a Huracarana outside with Nick covering Cage for the win. This match totally exceeded expectations. Somewhere between 3.75 stars B+, four stars A-, minus. just a blast from bell to bell. Dynamite next week, I believe, is in California. That's why Nick won, but it was a damn good TV match and definitely appropriate for the show. Even if I, you know, thought it was a little bit ridiculous regarding a title match being on the show and then a number one contendership, one guy not earning it and then another guy earning it. I digress. So with that, allow me to welcome in vintage Chris Vanini as we begin our AEW Wrestle Dream Ultimate Preview. We have an absolute ton to talk about here because the build in many ways was so rushed for Wrestle Dream. AEW spent the two hour rampage, uh, Collision and Dynamite doing significant build for the show. The Silver King has been so busy uh, with football, both college and pro, that I actually watched six hours of AEW television all on Wednesday before we taped the show. So you need to excuse me if I'm a little loopy kind of coming into this. There's so much to talk about for each of these individual segments. It is an ultimate preview. We want to give you the time and cover it in as in an as depth manner as possible. But I'm going to spin through some things as well. Chris, welcome to the show. Uh, anything you want to say before we kick this off? Good to be here. I always try to pop in for the AEW previews and whatnot. And uh, yeah, this is interesting card, interesting idea for a show. It came together really quickly. I didn't even realize till a couple of days ago that it was this weekend. Uh, so let's get into it. All right. We have Ricky Starks facing Wheeler Yuta. So Starks cut a taped promo after collision. He said he still ranks above Danielson because Brian never pinned him. Yuta showed up trying to make good for not letting them shake hands. I talked about that earlier. But Starks talked shit, 
and Yuta actually snapped back pretty strongly. I actually think Yuta won the promo battle in this really short segment. Excalibur called it a grudge match. I don't know how you get a grudge match after five days. Prediction is Starks winning because if he doesn't, I mean, what else sense does that make? Yes, Starks is winning. I didn't love the whole promo of you just beat me in a last man standing match, but actually I was the winner because I survived. I don't know. Like literally that's what a last man standing match is. Uh, But yes, Ricky Stark gets the win back here. Pretty easy decision, I think. For sure. We have the Young Bucks against the Lucha Brothers, the Guns, and Hook and Orange Cassidy in a number one contenders match for the AEW Tag Team Championship. On Rampage, Hook, Orange Cassidy, and Chris Statlander fought 2.0 and Anna J. They did the heavily choreographed triple suplex spot. Hook got Daddy Magic and Red Rum, and Cassidy hit Orange Punch on Angela Parker. As Stat did something with Anna that I just missed, uh, with Orange getting the win. Fun match, it popped the crowd, no real storyline relevance. The purpose was to build Hook and Orange as a tag team, but they already earned a spot in the number one contendership match before this even happened, so... It was just a spotlight, I guess, for them. On Dynamite, we had Matt Jackson, Pentagon, Austin Gunn, and Orange Cassidy in a fatal four-way match, one member of each team. There were four Canadian destroyers with each taking one, standing up, and then collapsing in the ring because we definitely needed that spot again. Matt somehow did a triple pinfall with a roll-up and a double Northern Light suplex bridge. Penta ate Orange Punch. Matt took Beach Break. Orange ate a Famouser. Austin took a triple super kick. Then Matt got blindsided by an orange punch as Cassidy got the win. I'm sure people are going to say this was a great match. This is not my style of wrestling. Just tons of like overdone choreography. That said, the talent on display was significant and the fans enjoyed it. That's what matters. Chris, before we get into the actual prediction, did you have anything to say about these matches? It felt like a very much a WWE style of booking where, hey, we've got all the tag teams that are going to fight. Let's do a singles match with Mm -hmm. everybody. And it actually felt kind of fresh in that sense because AEW doesn't do that. Having Matt Jackson in a a singles match, uh, Nick Jackson in a singles match, stuff like that. It felt fresh. And so I think that kind of amped up the excitement as well. uh, Just kind of getting you ready for this tag team match. So when Excalibur was running down the Wrestle Dream card at the end of Dynamite, I don't know if you caught this, but he seemed to give away the result of this match. He said, Orange and Hook, they're the lone team in this match with momentum coming in. Well, I mean, does that mean they're going to win? I mean, here, here's my take on it, right? The Bucks just recently challenged for the titles. The Guns have already challenged for the titles recently, so... For me, that eliminates two of the four teams. That leaves me with Lucha Brothers, Hook, and Orange Cassidy. Orange just got off this crazy long international title reign. He lost to Mox, and that whole situation is now convoluted. But he got his ass kicked. Like, they both kicked each other's ass, but he was all messed up. Now he's just in a tag team with Hook, and three weeks later, they're going to make them the number one contenders. I'm not saying that, like, Tony Khan doesn't, book things poorly, but I don't think he books things that poorly. So I'm going to have the Lucha Brothers winning this match. But if it's Orange and Hook out of this group of of teams, I'm going to be pretty disappointed with that. So like there was a big debate on wrestling Twitter a couple days ago of of, is Orange Cassidy's momentum gone over the last couple of weeks? Because he has this big moment with Mox, he loses the title, and then he's just kind of floating around not doing much for a couple of weeks. and. I think this is a continuation of doing stuff with 
Orange Cassidy. He's with Hook. He's in a tag team. I think they win this match, get a tag team championship. So Orange Cassidy is constantly doing things. He is one of your biggest stars. And as one of your biggest stars, he needs to constantly be doing things. I'm going to pick them. Uh, also, another point on the Young Bucks. I mean, they did just win the ROH Trios championships, <laughs> which are apparently still a thing. Uh, so I, I I don't think they'll get the AEW no. tag team belts on top of that. And we just saw FDR Bucks again. So, um, I'm yeah, I'm going to go Orange Cassidy Hook because they're just they're the ones with the most kind of going on. But that's and what Excalibur in general in general wrestling sense. It makes sense that they would they would get this. Uh, I mean, win. based on the way AEW books and we're going to talk about it right now in the TBS uh, championship match. But, you know, Tony Khan will put someone or a team, let's say, on TV to win matches like three shows in a row. And that suddenly makes them important enough to be number one contenders for something. And it comes out of nowhere. And this team has come out of nowhere. And like I said, Excalibur basically gave this away um, in the, in the, you know what? Actually, I'm changing my pick because I picked the Lucha Brothers. I forgot Phoenix is the international champion. So I know that wasn't planned either, but, oh, yeah. Yeah. but even though that wasn't planned, I don't know that he's going to put the international champion. I guess Hook is the FTW champion. Technically, I don't know that they're going to do that. I think you have the guns in this match. Hook or Orange can beat either of the guns and none of the other four need to take a fall. So, yeah, you're right. And I said it at the beginning, Excalibur gave it away when he was running down the card. I'm, I, go, I'm going with Orange and Hook. You're he right. He gave it away. He seemed to. Yeah. I think it was more just an acknowledgement of the of Orange Cassidy winning that match uh, and, and stuff like that. But, you know, we'll see. We're both picking him anyway, yeah. so maybe. Uh, uh, yeah, I cha- you got me to change my pick and, and whatever. All right. TBS Championship, Chris Statlander uh, defending against Julia Hart. So, on Rampage, Sky Blue fought Julia. Julia won a short match that she mostly dominated with submission uh, with Heartless was the submission she used. It was slightly disappointing to see Sky squashed this quickly when she's been prominently featured for like the last two months. Hart continued to attack after the bell, so Willow Nightingale made the save. Julia also beat and then post-match attacked Kiara Hogan on collision, with Sky like casually making the save, only to take black mist in her face. Apparently, Willow had taken Black Mist earlier in the day as well. So Brody King cuts a promo that showed me why he doesn't cut promos. He challenged Stat on Hart's behalf. Then on Dynamite, Julia fought Willow, who had a comically large bandage on her head that also covered one of her eye that had some face paint from the Black Mist. King distracted Willow, who ate a lariat to the back of her head. Willow broke Heartless with the ropes, then interrupted some weird cartwheel with a pounce. Julia sat up from a tree of woe to avoid a cannonball and hit a really nice moonsault for the win. This was easily the best of the three matches. It was the only real match of the three matches, I would say. All they really needed to do to build her up was give her one match against Willow, have her beat Willow, and have her cut a promo and challenge Stat for the title. That's literally it. They didn't have to throw her in three matches on three shows. There, there, were, there was one women's match on uh, Rampage, Collision, and Dynamite, and Julia Hart was in all three of them. That, that just kind of tells you the way they do things. Uh, commentary pointed out before the Rampage match that Hart came in with a 24-match winning streak. You'd think that we would have heard about that or it would have been made a bigger deal in the lead-up before it got to 24. Again, this is what AEW does constantly, where they take a talent that is just kind of around and they need a challenger for a title, so they elevate them over like a one- or two-week period and put them in a title feud. Here, it's literally three shows. She got three wins. And I don't necessarily hate the idea 
of elevating a talent quickly for a title feud. WWE has done it before with like Cesaro or some other people, but they just kind of half-assed it. Julia is the in the only women's match on three straight AEW shows. She said a total of five words, didn't even really cut her own promo. That's not how you build somebody. All they needed to do was the Willow match. Julia wins. She challenges stat, like I said before. Anyway, it's good to see Julia get an opportunity here. She's only 21, but her talent is way beyond her age. She had a great character change that had not been fully utilized until now. And she's really leaned into it with her presence, her entrance, all the aesthetics. Obviously, this is a spot where she's just going to be fodder for stat. She'll continue her reign. And obviously, there's, again, no real story of substance between them that is creating a legitimate feud for stat. That said, I'm kind of excited for the match. I do think stat retains the title. Yeah, Statlander is going to win, but I, I completely disagree with the idea that uh, this is that they're just throwing this together via three matches and it should have been one. I think this is exactly how you do it. You give someone three or four matches over a month, they win them all. But it's not over like a month. Bigger deal. Said, it was over one week. They, she had three matches on three straight shows. Yeah, because most of us don't know much about Julie Hart because you want to know what her pre... Before the stretch of matches, I pulled up her cage match uh, thing. Th these were her previous matches before this past week. July 8th, May 10th, April 19th, April 7th. This is March. what I'm saying. It's been months. Right. But I mean, that's what I'm saying. You needed to get a... You couldn't just have Julia Hart win one match and then suddenly cut a promo and she gets a title shot. She needed to rack up some wins until they gave her some First wins. of all, hold the on. Sky Blue match goes eight, the Sky Blue match goes eight minutes or so, which was nice. So, like, I thought they did a great job of building Julia Hart for this. She's not going to win, but this is the most Julia Hart attention and, and reason to like pay attention to her we've gotten in forever. So I actually thought they booked this pretty well. First of all, they've given people title matches. <laughs> Jeff Jarrett, a great example here with no matches beforehand or no build beforehand. I'm That's not, what I'm saying. That's right, why this was good. Right. Well, what, what I'm saying to you is that I appreciate the fact that, for example, the Willow match was great. I loved it on Dynamite. I appreciate the fact that they gave her that. And that was really my point is that was the only of the three matches that was substantive. So the other three, yeah, there was a storyline that tied them together with Sky Blue and Willow and The Mist and all that. I get it. But they're building a feud for Chris Statlander. She didn't have interactions with Chris Statlander. She like yeah. you don't necessarily need if, if she's on a 24 match winning streak at the beginning of this week, then all she needs to do is cut a promo on I'm on a 24 match winning streak. The house always wins. Blah, blah, blah. Willow confronts her. You got to get through me first. They have one match. She beats Willow. She challenges Stat. Or you do what you're talking about here, but you do it over multiple weeks. So she's consistently featured on AEW over a period of time, and you're learning about her over that period of time. She's cutting promos. She's getting vignettes. You're building her up. They did three matches in, what, five days, and now she's the number one contender they didn't need to do the three matches. They needed to do one, but what they really needed to do and what they need to do more frequently with other people, my complaint isn't so much about Julia, it's about AEW booking in general, is if you want to build up a contender for a title, you don't just do it in a one-week span. They had a month to do it, and they didn't. That's my problem. And a feud, not That's just the contender, but the feud. The feud was stat. There's no feud. They're, they don't really have a storyline between them. It's just Julie is now the contender and no, Stat's going to beat her. Yes, that part's fair. But also when All Out was on September 3rd, it's like there wasn't a ton of time to put it together. 24 uh, yes, days. I agree. Tied to, Stat, tied to Statlander more. They had Brody King cut a promo, say we're coming for Statlander, whatever. Like they did acknowledge it a little bit. But no, I, I do agree that uh, 
it's not really about the two of them. It's mostly about Julia Hart, which again, I don't hate because we know she's going to lose. And so I, I still think overall, Julia Hart will come out of this much more elevated than she was. You're right that it's not a lot of time, but it is 24 days. They had three weeks plus just between then and now. There's still collision this coming Saturday, obviously. Um, there was enough time to do a multi-week build and they really didn't. And, you know, look, maybe we'll get a confrontation on collision. We know we when we tape the show, there's still a go home show to go. There's two technically rampage and collision. It's very possible that we get an interview segment with them, that we get a confrontation segment with them. And maybe they deliver exactly what I'm talking about. We can only talk about it, though, as of Wednesday night when we're taping the show, because we're not going to do a go home show uh, or an ultimate preview show 24 hours before the pay-per-view. It just doesn't work. Let's move on, though. Ring of Honor Tag Team Championship, better than you, baby, against the Righteous. There was a four-way number one contendership match on Rampage with Righteous, the Hardys, Kingdom, and Best Friends. Jeff Hardy hit the Swanton Bomb on Chuck Taylor, but Vincent blind tagged and hit a second Swanton, which he calls Death From Above, which is a good name, for the win. This, despite Kingdom like seemingly being the obvious team to fight the guys they hate, Adam Cole and MJF, Kingdom beat up Best Friends in the post-match, which... Kind of didn't make sense, and they didn't. They haven't done anything with that since. Uh, Righteous on Collision said they'd expose the champions. They also got a similar package on Dynamite where they called the faces fake friends. I said last week that Righteous was kind of like a ripoff preacher version of the Wyatt family. It's actually more like a combination of Wyatt family and then Schism on NXT, except good Schism as opposed to what the one is in NXT, which is bad but also bad Wyatt family because Wyatt family was better. Either way, though, AEW, they haven't really done anything to make me care about these guys. And the video package is where they just say a bunch of words without kind of giving real motivation for a pay-per-view match. It didn't help me care that much. I don't know if you saw these or not. And we can skip to Dynamite if not. But do you have any opinion on the righteous themselves? My, my thought was they remind me of the righteous gemstones on HBO, uh, that whole show, uh, especially the name is part of it too, but like, you know, I, that, that's very much the vibe I got from it. Kind of, kind of like outback, you know, hillbilly religious type of stuff. Uh, that was the vibe I got. I just, I kept thinking of righteous gemstones, especially because of the name. Well, maybe it's like the, the family, the cousins on righteous gemstones. Yeah, exactly. That's oh, okay. exactly what I was saying. In the most recent season of righteous gemstones, okay. exactly them. Yep. that plays. I'll pl- Yeah, that works. I'll take that. Uh, So let's move to Dynamite. Adam Cole was on crutches joining MJF on his dad's boat in Long Island. After having a good time, MJF asked Cole, why were you on the phone with Roderick Strong for so long? Cole said he also loved Roddy like a brother. So MJF went to get Cole another beer. He actually put on the Dynamite diamond ring. Cole realized what was going down. And he said, hey, don't want you to put the ring on and like throw me over the boat and basically kill me. Um, I'm allowed to have more than one friend. And my, me caring about Roddy doesn't mean I don't care about you. We can be friends. I can be friends with him. And it doesn't affect anything. MJF basically admitted that was his plan uh, when suddenly they caught something with their fishing pole and the camera panned into the water where Paul White was dressed like Captain Insano in a rubber ducky floating like circle thing. I've said in prior weeks that I was getting tired of some of these packages and they started to kind of lose the funny they weren't hitting me in the field spot anymore. This one hit perfectly. Nine out of 10, no notes, loved it. I, I loved it. And, and I love the message. Like, 
just because like I, I'm allowed to have more than one friend is like honestly like a type of jealousy that like I think a lot of people can relate to or know somebody like absolutely. That. So I, just, I thought it was really it was really funny. It it it, it was a legitimate kind of conversation that you, you know reaches out to MJF because he's never had many friends, and then the the Paul White thing at the end just completely came out of nowhere but i couldn't i couldn't help but laugh about it um just good stuff really fun i'd say it was the cherry on top but i actually don't like cherries it was like the sprinkles and the whipped cream on top of the ice cream it was just like you're enjoying it and you're like oh this is a pretty damn good segment this is smart and it, it has good feeling to it and then boom paul white in the captain insano uh singlet it was very great and yes you're right mjf did make a comment in there i don't have any friends you're my first friend so having multiple friends is not for me, but I understand that it's for you. Just, it was a good message. And beyond that, it was just a good video package. It hit, it was funny. It was emotional. It worked in the storyline. Like, this is what I, this is what I want. I don't want a dude jumping in like a kiddie pool backstage at, at a dynamite, you know, randomly or whatever the hell that one was. I want this. This was quality. Uh, so on dynamite, Cole came out to the ring. This was later in the show with crutches and his foot in a cast. He was sitting in a chair in the middle of the ring. Cole announced his ankle exploded. It broke in three different places with torn ligaments, and he's in need of surgery. He went on to say that they need to relinquish the Ring of Honor tag team titles, but MJF cut him off, saying he wouldn't give up the titles to pieces of shit like The Righteous. MJF took blame for Cole's injury and said, since you came to help me during Grand Slam, I'm gonna help you. I'm gonna make sure... We keep these Ring of Honor tag team titles. I'm going to defend them by myself in a handicap match. So Strong interrupted. He got wheeled out in a neck brace, saying it was an emergency, and he needed Cole more than ever. MJF said he learned the lesson on the boat. He respects their friendship. He promised to be there when Cole gets back. Cole left them when suddenly Bullet Club Gold showed up with Jay White walking himself to the ring. The segment was about whether they're on the same level. MJF said he's filet mignon and white is tofu because you have to season it to get it to taste like anything. And otherwise, he's just bland. He's someone who is manufactured into being something he's not. I didn't go deep on the breakdown here, but this was an expert level promo from MJF, as is to be expected. White said MJF isn't loved by fans like Cole. And then he promised to take the title and be a truly elite champion. Then he called MJF soft, which set him off, and then White ran away. Backstage, in the final seconds of the show, White was shown getting his ass kicked by four dudes wearing all black. Then we saw a fifth, presumably MJF maybe, in the black and white devil mask. He grabbed the camera as Dynamite went off the air. Okay, a lot to dig in here. I will be as quick as I can. Yeah. Sucks for Cole with the injury. The guy has no luck at all. This is assuming it's real, by the way. Clearly, Tony Khan is going to have to rewrite a ton of his plans if that's the case. So if it is real, I'll be interested to see what he does with babyface MJF, who currently holds a Ring of Honor tag team title. Uh, MJF was exceptional in his part of the promo segment with White. The problem is he was so good that White was outclassed before he could even speak. And don't get me wrong, Jay did well for himself, but it was kind of a roller coaster. He was hitting and then he lost me and then he was hitting and then he lost me whereas MJF just maintained a high level the entire time. It was also the first time I looked at Jay White and I thought, you know, I know this guy's from New Zealand, but he kind of looks like he's from Kentucky. Like I couldn't get that out of my head and I just felt like I had to say it here. And then the last shot on Dynamite, it was a real 
WTF moment. And not WTF like, whoa, that was so cool. I didn't expect it, but rather like, wow, that was kind of weird. The one thing I will note is the guy in the mask certainly did not have MJF's build. Maybe it was Andrade's crew. Uh, We talked about that coming out of Collision. Maybe it was all a ruse by Kingdom, Roddy, and Cole, and they're going to frame MJF here. Interesting, but also weird. Anyway, it's going to be a high-caliber match when it happens. MJF and White, what we got Wednesday, it didn't make me care that much about it as a feud, but it was also just the first step, and there's plenty more for them to go. The main segment went way too long. It felt like it was 30 straight minutes, and then... They went to like a Darby Allen uh, and Christian Cage thing. That was another five minutes. It felt like it was 40 minutes of dynamite with no commercials. I was just ready for this segment to be over. I have no idea why they felt they needed to do this on the go home dynamite when they could have saved it for next week, maybe even run some of the angle at Wrestle Dream. But I digress. I'll let you get in. That's my take overall on what we got. Well, I'll tell you why when we get to the picks. But okay. first... I thought the Adam the Adam Cole thing, I thought it was work. Like, I, I thought it, it was not real because he didn't seem, like, that sad, you know? Right. Like, he seemed to be very much in character still. And considering all the injuries Cole's had coming back from the concussion stuff, like, I would have expected him to kind of be more down. But then it just, nothing ever came from it. So I was like, oh, damn, I guess this is true. And that, like, really, really sucks. So that's going to blow up a lot of plans. I did wonder there when Adam Cole was like, we're going to relinquish the titles and, and MJF gets mad and goes behind him. I thought then and there we might get MJF turning on Cole. Mm-hmm. Like, Me too. Yeah. You're going to have to do it now because he's hurt. You're going to have to do it now. Like otherwise this whole storyline is going to be gone for a few months or something like that. I thought in the moment, I thought that might happen. It didn't happen. The Jay White stuff. I have consistently said when I've been on the AW podcast that what what are they doing with Jay White? They got Jay freaking White here, and he's like in tag teams half the time. He doesn't feel like a big deal. So when he comes out and he's like, no, it's just me and MJF out here, I was like, all right, here we go. We're finally getting the MJF. I'm sorry, get the, the Jay White that I've wanted for a while. I thought the promo between them wasn't great on either side. It was kind of a letdown, and I think that's partially because of like, the meta-ness when it comes to AEW, it's like, oh, we've got an MJF Jay White promo. Like that's like that's part of the promo is that they have a promo against each other. Like it's a little too much as opposed to just like getting to it. And so it meandered for quite a while. Neither of them really hit on stuff. To me, it didn't pick up until the end when Jay White just got in his face and started. And by the way, is taller than MJF. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize that until I got face to face. I was like, oh, Jay White's a bigger guy than I thought he was. And then he just starts like spitting catchphrases and doing stuff with his hands and stuff like that. I was like, all right, this guy's cool. Like th- this is, he's just being cool in front of MJF. And then they do the little thing at the end and it was done. So, so by the end, I was like, all right, I'm excited for this. I didn't think the promo battle was great. But at the end, when Jay White's just like, I'm just going to be cool and do a bunch of stuff in front of you while, mm-hmm. I, while I'm taller than you. I was like, all right, I'm into it now. So like they got me by the end, but before that it had, it had been a letdown. Yeah, I think that's fair. And who do you think these guys are? I mean, I, I laid out two options. I think one is, uh, LFI basically, La Faction and Gorbanable. Another is Roderick Strong, Adam Cole and the kingdom. But then who's the fifth guy? Would it be MJF? And they're all actually working together. I mean, MJF saying to them at the end of the segment, like, Cole, I get it. You have other friends. Go be friends with them. 
maybe they were like, hey, why don't you be friends with us also? And they're all working together. I, I don't know. Like, uh, it, it could be either of those like, two. It could also be like Kyle O'Reilly is the fifth person and MJF is totally yeah. out of it. But then why would all those guys attack Jay on MJF's behalf? That doesn't necessarily make sense. So right. I don't and know. They just made they just made a point to tell us that MJF doesn't have any friends. Right. Exactly. So who is it? I honestly I have no idea, and that's kind of fun. Also, like not only that, but like grabbing the camera and it kind of going fuzzy, like just none of that fit MJF. So I like I don't think that was MJF. I have no idea what it what it was um <coughs> or, or why, but uh I'm intrigued. Yeah. So we'll see uh if we learn more on collision or Wrestle Dream or maybe next week on Dynamite. Now in terms of this match, the prediction suddenly got really tough. It's better than you, Bebe, technically, against the Righteous for the ROH Tag Team titles. I mean, <laughs> based on what happened here, you know, it, let me put it this way. If it was clean and there was no, like, end of show segment, I would say MJF is going to beat them in a handicap match. He's the world champion. You can kind of excuse it. It's really strong booking, but the Righteous aren't that developed as a team. It's not the end of the world. But then you got the end of show booking and it kind of throws things into chaos where you think, oh, maybe someone attacks MJF. There's some excused loss situation. I don't know. I think because there's not a huge build for the righteous and AEW is on this trend. I mentioned this earlier in the show of putting all of their ring of honor titles on like really big names right now. I'm going to say MJF retains the titles, but I can't be sure of it. I'm, I'm, I'm less sure of it, I should say, now than I was when I initially thought it through earlier. So the fact that he's fighting the righteous kind of throws a wrench into all this. However, it is just the Ring of Honor tag team titles, which don't really mean anything. So Mm -hmm. I'm saying the righteous win thanks to interference from Jay White to set up the Jay White MJF feud. Adam Cole's gone. If If he really is gone. You got to get the titles off of him. There's nothing MJF can do with this. He's going to have to lose them at some point. I, 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 you could throw a tag team partner on him, whatever. I don't care. The, the Adam Cole story is done, presumably, for the time being. So just have Jay White interfere, cost him this match. He can take a pin in a handicap match with interference, basically a three-on-one or more if the Bullet Club come in. And then you set up MJF, Jay White moving forward, which very clearly seems like the next thing. It's a big match, so... That is my prediction. Yeah, I think you're probably, I'm going to keep my prediction, but I think you're probably right. There's just so many ways to get the titles off of MJF. And if the whole booking was for MJF and Cole to be together, that was the original plan. And now Cole, let's say, is not available. Then what's really the purpose of MJF just holding the titles until someone else beats him for them? Then he's carrying two sets of titles by himself, the world title and then the ROH tag team titles. I'm going to keep my prediction, but yeah, I think it probably makes more sense to take the title off of him. Uh, the Ring of Honor title and the New Japan Strong Openweight title will both be on the line as Eddie Kingston defends against Katsuyori Shibata. Shibata has the ROH Pure title, which apparently is not on the line in this match. There was no real storyline build for this. Kingston's going to retain. They are not putting the ROH title on Shibata when he already has the Pure title. Unless, and I think I mentioned this briefly earlier, maybe they're doing something where they merge a bunch of titles, but he'd have to take both the titles. You have to take the NJPW title as well. And I don't think that's the plan. So Kingston retains. 
correct me if I'm wrong, uh, as someone who just watched six six hours of AEW in one day, <laughs> we didn't get any King. We didn't get any Eddie Kingston after he won the title, right? There was a video. I didn't mention it because it didn't say anything. There was a like a video package from Kingston, basically telling Shibata he would beat him. And then yeah. last like, week, I, 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 last yeah. week Shibata spoke through an iPhone saying he wanted to challenge for the titles. That's literally the entire build. I'm stunned we did not get an Eddie Kingston promo on Dynamite. Like yeah. this, I, like I know he's the Ring of Honor World Champion, but like he is a guy. He is captivating on the mic. He should be cutting promos at least once a week on one of your shows. Maybe he'll show up on Collision and it'll be fine. But I'm just after he won the title last week. I'm so surprised as they didn't follow up with some Eddie Kingston. Hey, I finally got it type of promo like build on that emotion instead we're just as of right now going into another title match so maybe we'll get on collision we'll see but that surprised me and, and also my pick is eddie kingston in this match all right uh we have chris jericho and the golden lovers against the don Callis family you may be asking silver king how did this all come together well i'll tell you because like chris just said i watched six hours of AEW on wednesday on rampage uh Callis with kanosuke takeshka introduced sammy guevara he said He's the one he always wanted instead of Chris Jericho. It seemed like the boos were really loud, but AEW's microphones barely picked them up on TV. This is on Rampage. Different thing on Dynamite. Uh, Sammy said he used to hate Don, but realized that he was giving him a real family and Chris was holding him back. He cut a You People promo saying he was rich with a hot wife. Really trite, boring shit. Thankfully, Jericho attacked and somehow beat up both younger active wrestlers on his own until Takeshka brought a steel chair that they both used on him. Then Callis got some shots in. Kenny Omega made the save uh, from a uh, screwdriver stabbing attempt. Callis tried to stab Jericho with the screwdriver. That brought Omega out to stop it. The best part was a line from commentary pointing out that Callis is such a major piece of shit and so detestable that he somehow brought Jericho and Omega together, as improbable as that might be. Then backstage, Omega said he didn't make the save for Jericho. He just wants to get revenge on Callis. Jericho appreciated the save. He knew his intentions and was willing to unite to take Callus out. Kenny had a massively corny line saying Wrestle Dream would become a Wrestle Nightmare straight out of the 80s. Uh, then they basically issued a six-man challenge, including Kota Ibushi in their challenge. On Collision, Callus accepted the challenge saying Will Ospreay would join their side. So I guess he is part of the family. I don't know. It's kind of confusing. He's in another faction in New Japan. And then on Dynamite, there was footage of Takeshka attacking Ibushi in his Japanese dojo, knocking him out with a kettlebell. He choked him with a leather jacket. Fans chanted, fuck you, Sammy, when we cut back to the ring. Guevara repeated pretty much the same stuff about Jericho holding him down, but it was way better from Sammy here than what we got on Rampage. And the boos were mic'd up well, and the crowd was really loud, booing them. I'm pretty sure they were loud at Rampage too, but you could actually hear it on Dynamite. Up until the Omega save in the first segment, I was ready to crap all over this because it was boring as sin and there wasn't much point and Guevara's promo was really weak. It hardly explained his actions and it didn't get him over as a heel. But then the intrigue increased significantly with Jericho and Omega teaming together. And as we mentioned previously, there now actually seems to be some building blocks of a family for Callus, which really didn't exist even though he kept talking about it for months on months. Osprey, I doubt he's gonna be a permanent member of it, so it's probably going to need to go beyond two people. But I ultimately end up ended up liking the build, primarily once we got past Rampage or once we got past the opening segment of Rampage. And now we have a six-man match 
it's probably going to bang on WrestleDream. Yes, this is going to bang for sure. I, this was intriguing, and and I, I mean this in a completely positive way. Don Callis is getting Dominic Mysterio heat. <laughs> I mean, like it was mm-hmm. legitimate where he is having to kind of yell over the booze. That's that's a, a compliment to the work he does as a heel. Um, it is kind of funny that Sammy Guevara was like, I had to get out of Chris Jericho's shadow and he was overshadowing me. So I'm just going to join the Don Callis <laughs> family where I'm just kind of. In I said that last week. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So. That uh, that was funny, but uh, yeah, no, I, I'm interested in it. It's it's a unique matchup. I mean, Kenny and Chris Jericho, they've been what they haven't been on the same side of anything in forever. You go back to the first, what the first all the first all in, right? It was Kenny Omega versus Jericho, I think, or no, Jericho Jericho showed up at the end of All In. Yeah, All to, Out. I think uh, you're talking about Codebreaker him. Yeah, yeah, no, the first All In. Yeah, yeah. So, um, but but yeah, that's we we've seen them go against each other for a while. I don't think we'd ever seen them together in AW. So. I am excited about this. I was talking about... And the pick is, uh, I guess, do we make picks yet? Or what do you think? I didn't make a pick yet. Uh, you can go ahead and do it. Sure. I'll go with the Jericho and the Golden Elite. The Don Callis family, Takeshka, they've gotten a lot of wins recently. I think Jericho and the Golden Elite get one here. Yeah, I what, what I was mentioning earlier was the first all out, but I was actually wrong because that was Jericho and Hangman Page in the main event. So that wasn't even correct. But mm-hmm. Jericho and Omega, I mean, they had the feud in Japan. They feuded in AEW. So no, they've never really been on the same side, even when they were both baby faces previously or both heels. They were never really on the same side of anything, which does make this intriguing. I actually agree with you. This is normally a spot when I do match predictions. I, I will take the heels in a multi-man situation like this. Abushi can take the fall, no problem. Jericho can take the fall, no problem. But it does very much feel like this was, I don't want to say thrown together because this is a legitimate storyline and mo- a multiple-phased storyline that is all coming together here. It's just like Omega hasn't actually gotten over on the Callus family yet. And Jericho just had Sammy turn. And then Osprey and Ibushi, they just keep getting thrown into things. Like, they're actually not needed for this. Jericho, Omega, Takeshka, and Sammy, that's the storyline. Ibushi and Osprey yeah. don't really have much to do with it. I mean, you could go back, obviously, and talk about Callus bringing uh, Osprey into All In with Jericho. So I'm not saying it's not related. It, it is all related. But for the actual feud that this match is covering... They're not really part of it. Is that what I'm trying to say? But but they've told that story over the last few weeks, including Ibushi taking Omega's heart. Obviously, you have Osprey who is competing with Omega for greatest active wrestler. Osprey and Jericho had the match at All In. And now Jericho and Sammy are feuding. So it's all connected. I'm just saying those pieces weren't needed necessarily for this match. But because those pieces are in this match and because Omega just hasn't really gotten over in this situation yet. I do think the baby faces win. I still think there's going to be a continuation of Jericho and Sammy. And I have to believe there's still going to be more Omega and Takeshka probably at the next pay-per-view. That'll be the send-off of that. That would be my guess. Let's go ahead, move on to the TNT Championship. Christian Cage defending against Darby Allen in a two out of three falls match. And a shitload happened before we got to this. So here we go. On Rampage, Darby and Sting fought Christian and Luchasaurus. Sting took out Christian with Scorpion Death Drop, then combined with Darby for a Scorpion Death Coffin Drop, which I feel is like the first time they've done that, but I could be wrong. It was great. 
uh, threw an eye poke, Christian turned momentum and had Darby ready for Unprettier, only for Nick Wayne to jump on the apron in a distraction with Darby countering into a jackknife cover for the win. Good match on what was an important Grand Slam show. But when you talk about repetitiveness, this was the first of three times these guys were going to fight in a nine-day period. The second time was on collision. The TNT championship was on the line. Luchasaurus, Christian, and Darby in a triple threat match. And this was set up through storyline last week. Luchasaurus saved Christian from a coffin drop inside. So Darby hit a double standing coffin drop outside. Luchasaurus found the TNT title and looked upon it fondly for the very first time. So Christian screamed, demanding it to be handed to him. Darby pushed them into each other and used the title on Luchasaurus. Then he had a coffin drop, but Christian threw Darby out of the ring and covered his own partner, Luchasaurus, to win the title. Christian celebrated after. He forced Luchasaurus to raise his arm and put him on his shoulders. Later, he dedicated the victory to Nick Wayne's parents, only to learn he will defend the title against Darby at WrestleDream in two out of three falls. This went exactly as expected. We discussed this last week. I think it was obvious to anyone watching the way this was going to end and be booked. And it makes sense. It further confirms that Christian's a piece of shit and a manipulator. The stipulation is a different twist. I did not expect that, but it hardly changes the match itself. And then on Dynamite, Christian and Darby sat down for an interview with Jim Ross. Christian said Darby's wins over him were flukes in non-title matches, and he beat his ass in front of his family and friends. Christian also went after Darby's uncle. We've heard about that story every six months for four years, uh, and he did more forced references to dead people. He wanted Darby's family there. He wanted Nick Wayne's family there. It was just eye-rolling for me. Uh, Darby challenged Christian to wrestle him with no one ringside, including Luchasaurus. Christian said Nick needed a real role model, and Darby was good at hiding behind his face paint. So Darby got a bottle of water, washed off his face paint, and then the whole thing kind of suddenly ended. This may have been, without exaggeration, the best interview segment they've ever done. Other than the repetitive Christian shit in the beginning, I really liked it. Like the whole, I'm Christian, and if your parents are dead, I'm going to talk about them. Or if your mom's hot, I, I want to I bang her. It's enough. Like, it's fun when he does it, but it's the only thing he does now, and it's just an eye roll for me. But other than, like, that small part of it, I thought this was tremendous. Uh, in terms of the match prediction, I'll just go ahead and go all the way through here, Chris, and you can give your full thought. Darby has to be winning the title, okay? Especially after this long of a feud and this many matches and the fact that it's in Seattle, which is where he's from. It's all set up for a situation like, the referee gets knocked out. Christian wants Luchasaurus's help. Lucha either den denies him or turns on him. Darby wins. Either way, I have to believe Darby walks out with the title. Otherwise, they move into that like Christian, Nick Wayne storyline, which just feels tired and repetitive of someone taking someone else's friend and manipulating them. We're, we're literally seeing it right now with Sammy Guevara. We just talked about it. So Darby wins the title. I think this is going to be a great climax to a long-term storyline even if it took us forever to get there with a lot of repetitiveness. Christian is just freaking killing it, man. He has been killing it for a long time. And the low-key best part of this segment was him, like, not disputing what Jim Ross says, but just saying that I won the TNT title on collision to continue my reign. Like, mm -hmm. he's, like, not even saying I won the title from Luchasaurus, just saying, no, this is just a continuation of my reign as champion that has been going on since Luchasaurus won the title. Like, it's such a, it's such a little thing that he is just, like, nails every single time. It went from, like, 
like pretending to just straight up being like, no, I'm the champion and this is how it goes. And I just thought that was really, really funny. Um, Darby Allen is 100% going to win this match in Seattle. Also feels like a chance potentially like post-match maybe where Luchasaurus like turns on him or something. And we get that next story going on for Christian. Um, and Christian can cut jokes about uh, how Luchasaurus's dinosaur parents were killed by a meteor uh, millions of years ago. So yeah. uh, I, I'm picking Darby Allen here as well. Just a quick note before we continue. So if there's any talk of uh, Adam Cole's injury being fake, and, and I guess technically it still could be, but Britt Baker literally on Twitter while we're talking here, uh, posted screen, not screenshots, pictures of Adam Cole's ankle broken in multiple places. There's an x-ray bruising, uh, broken in three places, freak accident, still hobbled around on live TV because like we say, the show must go on. Adam Cole gives his entire heart and soul to pro wrestling. He's one tough cookie and this is a small bump in the road. He'll be back better than ever, baby. So they could be pictures of someone else. Definitely possible. Uh, But unless they're doing this huge ruse uh, with his broken ankle, it seems like it's real. And that doesn't d- disqualify him and Kingdom and Roderick Strong possibly being those masked guys. But it does seem like the ankle injury is real. Just wanted to point that out while we're taping the show. We've got three more matches left. Uh, Tag Team Championship. FTR defending against Aussie Open. First on collision. Tag Team Championship is on the line. FTR defending against the Workhorseman. Dax Harwood tapped out one of the dudes with a sharpshooter. Aussie Open were on commentary the whole time. After the bell, they grabbed the mic saying they want to prove they're the best in the world. FTR said they're the best of all time. This is like literally 90% of all FTR storylines. I think the only one that wasn't about that was the guns. Everything else is we're the best. No, we're the best. We're going to prove you we're the greatest tag team. Like, okay, I I get it. Give me a storyline, right? This should be a great match. Mm -hmm. As it always is when FTR defends the title, on a pay-per-view. Aussie Open just lost the Ring of Honor tag team titles to MJF and Adam Cole. I have no designs on the fact that Tony Khan is going to promote them and give them the AEW tag team titles. So I have FTR retaining. Yeah, FTR is 100% retaining here. This is uh, not going to be a contest, but I do think it will be fun. But it's just like, let's have a great, we're going to have a great wrestling match is like kind of the whole thing. So Sure, whatever. Like you said, there's no there's no story to this. Right. It'll be fun. FTR, FTR retains. Now, there is a story to Hangman Page against Swerve Strickland. The go-home for this was a contract signing, basically in the main event of Dynamite. Swerve said Hangman doesn't compare to him and referenced his old gimmick, Kill Shot. Page thanked Swerve for getting his head straight and speaking the truth during their initial confrontation. Hangman said he realized the fans deserve the best of him and he deserves the best from himself. Swerve laughed and called him pathetic. He got Broncos and Russell Wilson cheap heat, which was actually topical and solid. So I will allow that. Swerve promised to take Hangman's position and Page pretty much saved the segment because Swerve got lost in the middle of his promo. He was talking way too fast and just lost his place. But Hangman came back around. He called back to their original argument and said, you're not going to take my place. Basically, I'm going to keep my place. So Swerve smacked Page. He went to sign. So Hangman fake stabbed him with the pen until they got separated. This was supposed to hit really hard. The problem is, it was on the exact same show as the MJF Jay White segment. And this just completely mm-hmm. in every way paled in comparison to that. Neither, and I love Swerve, you guys know that, neither Swerve nor Hangman were as good as MJF or Jay White. 
it was even more reason why that MJF and Jay White segment, unless there's something else that happens Friday or Saturday or, or Sunday, that's even more reason why they should have saved that until next week, knowing you had this on the show. So I'll give a prediction in a moment, but I want to hear your thoughts on this from Dynamite. Yeah, look, like the two of them, just this whole feud, the story, like I've really enjoyed it. It's felt very hot. It feels like, oh, these are two guys. Both of them feel like they could get right back into that world title picture with the win here. Definitely. Um, I, I, everything is, is great about that. But this promo segment was not great. N- neither of them did a great job. The fans were actually kind of booing Hangman a little bit. They, they were kind of <laughs> a behind bit. Swerve yeah. until until he dropped the Denver Broncos line. So you're you're right that after having the the MJF Jay White thing, this didn't hold up to that, which is understandable. Um, I also think just both of their promos, like it's just kind of basic. It's like Hangman's like, yeah, man, you said I I, I was kind of being lazy and and I wasn't. I'm gonna show that I'm not like. Tell me a story, like just come up with some story and like take me through that journey as you're cutting this promo. It was very just basics, kind of repeating the same things they'd uh, been doing. That said, I'm looking forward to it. Um, The pick, I think, is difficult because like I could both of these guys kind of need this win. And and one other thing unrelated, I just wrote down credit to Hangman. Um, Sometimes been criticized for his look, like very handsome guy, but a little like just kind of like chubby sometimes. He's looking ripped. He's got the chest hair kind of growing out. Dude looks like a million bucks. So it's not just storyline. Like he literally physically is back to that level and it adds to the story that he's trying to tell. So not a great go home segment between the two, but I still think the story is, is overall really solid. Look good, but she's got me saying, hey now. Chris got a little thing for Hangman Page over there, but no, you're right. He, he is looking good. He's looking better than he was, especially a couple months ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I think the... Biggest problem, and this is kind of what I was talking about, you had MJF and Jay White that went out there, and not just where they, they were better promos, period. But MJF took Jay White walking into the ring and told an entire story. And you have Hangman Page and Swerve that actually have a story, but couldn't really tell the story in their own promo segment. And that's part of the issue here. What What's most intriguing about this, and this is what you were saying, is it feels like two guys who can get right back into the title picture, but these feel like two guys who, I, I know they have the four pillars and MJF is one and Sammy and all those, but these guys both feel like multi-time, long-term AEW stars and champions. And it's the first meeting of what could be six meetings. You know what I mean? Over their entire career. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying... They're John Cena and Randy Orton. But the potential equivalent of like younger guys who are up and coming, they're not the top stars yet, but they have a chance to be the top stars in three to five years, but they're meeting for the first time. That's what this feels like, except they didn't give me that feeling. I get that feeling just because of their talent level. And that was part of the problem with this. But when we get to the match at WrestleDream, it's going to bang. It has a chance to be a top two match of the entire night and probably not one. So probably the number two match of the entire night, but it has that ceiling and I'm very excited about it. Now it's really easy to just make the prediction that because they're in Seattle, uh, that Swerve's going to beat Hangman because that's where Swerve is from. Um, but I think it actually makes way more storyline sense for Swerve to beat Hangman. Hangman's already had the spotlight. Swerve hasn't. They've mentioned multiple times Swerve getting the opportunity to be the first black AEW champion. Well, if MJF is actually going to remain on that baby face track, 
MJF against Swerve makes a shit load of sense. We've already seen MJF against Hangman. Obviously, roles reversed in that situation. So beyond the fact that they're in Seattle, but also because of the fact that they're in Seattle, my pick is Swerve. My pick is Swerve as well. He's just, he's the guy on the come up. Like I know they've, they've told a good story about Hangman Page like getting back to this moment and all that stuff, but Swerve's just a guy who's been on the rise and it just, it feels like his time. Like sometimes in wrestling, you just, you can tell it's somebody's time. And this feels like Swerve's time throwing the Seattle part as well. He is my pick for this match as well. Plus, I definitely want to see Prince Nana do the dance after he wins the match. I mean, we have to see that, right? There you go. Yeah. All right. The main event or what at least should be the main event of Wrestle Dream, Brian Danielson against Zack Sabre Jr. This is a legitimate dream match, not just for Brian personally, but for fans. Matches like these are among the top reasons why Brian said he left WWE for AEW, to have the freedom to wrestle guys like Sabre whenever, wherever. Now, obviously, this is happening in AEW, but the pandemic stunted a lot of Brian's plans to wrestle in Japan, do the G1 Climax, fight guys like Zack Sabre Jr. and Kazuchika Okada, stuff like that. This match has a five-star ceiling, period, and it's almost certainly going to reach it. But there has been zero storyline. Brian said, I want to fight Zack Sabre Jr. Zack Sabre Jr., I think, cut a promo on New Japan's media where he basically was like, yeah, I want to fight you too. And that was really it. Now, because Rampage is taped, we're not going to see Zack Sabre Jr. on Rampage, but Collision is Saturday night live, and it is obviously 24 hours before we get Wrestle Dream. So I would not be surprised if we actually get a promo segment, a confrontation, something a lot meatier than just two great technical wrestlers fighting each other. I would not be surprised if we got that Saturday night on Collision, but I can only project I don't know that for sure. Regardless, again, match with a five-star ceiling, probably the rightful main event of the show given the rest of the card. We'll talk about the entire card in a moment. Brian Danielson beats Zack Sabre Jr. Yeah, also that collision on Saturday is in Seattle as well. So there you go. It just it makes a lot of sense. Like the, the story here is Brian Danielson wrestling for AEW in Seattle. Like that's just it's what it is. Also, there have been a there was a lot of AEW wrestlers from Seattle. Yeah, I, I guess so. Um just turns out but Brian Danielson famously the star. I mean, he's not from Seattle, he's from the state of Washington, Aberdeen. Aberdeen. But yeah. just the idea of being in Seattle. So um yeah, like I, I'm looking forward to this. It makes a lot of sense as the main event again because Brian Danielson is the star that he is. I just I I wonder like coming off of Danielson Okada like is it just being is it impossible to live up to what we have in our heads? You know, like if we're just expecting five star match, yeah, it's so hard for it to be that. And I know Danielson got hurt against Okada. That was part of it, but like. Uh, the pick is Danielson here for sure. Obviously I hope it's a really good match. I'm not going to go in and say five-star match. Cause I don't want to go in with too high of expectations, but well, I'm not, I'm hold on. Let me, let me clarify. I'm not saying it's going to be a five-star match. I'm saying yeah. that's the ceiling. And then I'm saying it most likely sure. will meet that ceiling. I'm not saying it's a five-star match right. before it I, happens. I, I mean, I haven't seen it. Yeah. Right. I'm just, so we'll see. But there's no, no real other analysis other than how good is the match going to be. So, yeah, <laughs> at this point. 
to pick is Danielson. To what you said, the Okada match did fall way below expectations, and and it fell below expectations before the broken arm. Now, mm-hmm. once that broken arm happened, at that moment, had it not happened, who the hell knows what would have transpired through the remainder of that match. But we went into that match thinking, oh my God, this may be potentially the best match ever. Like it, it had the possibility, right? Just because of the talent of the wrestlers right. and it didn't live up to it. So you're right. Coming in, if we're saying, hey, if this is not a five-star match, I'm going to be massively disappointed. No, that's not, not the case. But it has that ceiling. That's how talented they are. That's how badly both of them have wanted to do this match. That's how badly fans have wanted to see them fight each other. It is a worthy main event for the show. You know, that's a good opportunity for us to kind of move into talking about the entire card before we give our pre-show expectation grade. This was promoted as like an, a show that honors Antonio Inoki. There hasn't been any real build towards that outside of the Eddie Kingston stuff. Not, nothing, nothing. Yeah, like outside, nothing. outside of like Eddie Kingston page. mentioning it a couple times. He mentioned it in the video package. And yes, Shabbat is on the show and Zack Sabre Jr. is on the show and Konosuke Takeshka is on the show. Most of these guys are in AEW these days, right? Obviously, Sabre not being the case in Shibata. Um, but this, it's not like this this huge New Japan contingent on this card or that they have special matches in place, like a match stipulation that honors something Anoki did. So I have no doubt that he's going to be honored on the show, but it really just kind of felt like, it felt like this from the beginning, but especially now when you look at the card, like an excuse to do a third pay-per-view, and I wish I did the math, but in six weeks, in, in five weeks. I mean, it, it's like, crazy. And Noki died in last October, like forbidden door could have been the show to honor him. Like, I, right. There's no, there's no reason. And there's nothing, there's not even like the Antonio Noki Memorial battle Royal or like something like there's, just, there's nothing like that. So it has nothing to do with Antonio Noki, uh, other than they just said it's for Antonio Noki. Well, yeah, I mean, on the show, it's very possible they honor him on the show and do something special for him. Like, no question. And let's also be clear, it is literally on the date of his death. It's October 1st. That's when he died. So it is on the one year anniversary. And it's very possible Tony Khan has plans for it that maybe don't make sense to promote. But again, it just it's always kind of felt like an excuse. And when you look at this card, it's not a bad card, I think. Half of the matches are legitimate pay-per-view matches. The other half, though, either don't have build or they just kind of feel like continuations of storylines that otherwise should have been over or could have been over. And great examples here are like the Ricky Starks match came out of a quick 30-second thing that happened on Collision. There's a number one contendership for a tag team title. Despite the fact that there's two tag team title matches on the show, there's only one women's match. And stats great, and she's on her way to being one of the top stars in AEW, but right now she's not one of the top stars in AEW. No other women are on the card. Your world champion is in a tag team match, now a handicap match, defending you know himself against the righteous of all people who were only introduced on TV a few weeks ago. But that said, you also have the culmination of Christian Cage and Darby Allen, which we're really excited about. Hangman Page and Swerve, some storyline, not a ton, but also pretty intense, or it was at least when it started. Danielson and Sabre, a dream match, no matter how you want to categorize that. And then you have that six man with Chris Jericho, the Golden Lovers, and the Don Callis family, which is really intriguing and has a lot of storyline build, maybe more than anything else on this entire show. 
it's just a real big mixed bag. And I would tell you, Chris, I'm just being candid. Like we're honest on this show, okay? If we did not do this podcast and I was not gonna do an ultimate preview and then an instant analysis, I probably would not buy Russell Dream. I wouldn't tell other people not to buy it. I just say, I'm saying I wouldn't because I already just spent as a customer $100 in back-to-back weeks. Now they're asking me to spend 50 more. I would probably find out how good it was and then maybe find a way to watch it on the back end. Yeah, and by the way, like, I don't, I don't know if you talked about it on the AEW show or not, but like Warner Brothers Discovery recently announced on Max that like they're going to have a lot of live sports on there as part of a Bleacher Report add-on. Not included in that is AEW for some reason. And that like, if you, if you were to tell me, hey, five, 10 bucks for AEW pay-per-views every other month on Max, like I could stomach that. Can't stomach dishing out 50 bucks a show three times in less than two months. It, it It's it's a lot. It's a it's a solid, fine card. But again, it, it's not something I, I would go out of my way to watch, I, I guess. And one other thing, go back to the Inoki part, like the whole idea of honoring Antonio Inoki, like he didn't do much in the United States. Like he was barely in WWE or WCW. He, st- he stopped wrestling in basically in the late 90s. Oh, like, yeah. Who like who is who who other than Tony Khan, like who felt like Antonio Inoki needed to be honored with a pay-per-view in AEW? Nobody. Just, yeah. There's no connect. There's it's like zero connection. Like Owen Hart, like doesn't have a connection, but like I kind it makes a little bit more sense to do the Owen Cupping and stuff like that. Antonio Inoki just feels like Tony Khan loved Antonio Inoki and I want to honor him with a pay-per-view. And we're just doing Tony Khan's wishes here and having zero connection to it otherwise. I just extremely it feels like they wanted to do a pay-per-view on October 1st and we're like, hey, how do we justify this? And someone said, well, why don't you just do an Antonio Noki memorial card? It's one year after his death. And, and like they said, OK, yeah, that makes sense. And we'll call it Wrestle Dream. Like, that's just kind of the way it came together. Now, we got to be fair, OK, because we also kind of poo-pooed the All Out card a little bit going into that show and All Out. And I've kind of changed my tune on this a little bit, but all that was a better show than all in when you talk about just the wrestling and the matches, not the spectacle and any of that type of stuff. So they ended up delivering. We said, how the hell are they going to do two shows in back to back weeks? This is ridiculous. Asking fans to pay a hundred dollars and inside of an eight day period is ridiculous. So on and so forth. All out freaking delivered. And again, the match quality on this show can absolutely deliver. No matter what we give as a pre-show expectation grade, there's probably going to be a great opportunity for AEW to exceed that. It's just when you think about the consumer and the fact that you just asked them to pay $100 combined in back-to-back weeks, and now you're saying spend 50 more. And by the way, the world championship isn't being defended. The international championship isn't being defended. There may have been plans. Perhaps those changed because John Moxley got injured. None of the top women are going to be on the show. There's half the matches aren't going to have legitimate storylines. When that happens, it's just like, that's not really fair to your consumer. Yeah, I just I feel like if AEW just kind of put this all together into like one big show, or just didn't do all out and put it here. Like I feel like it it would feel a lot different. All out was like good wrestling and stuff like that, but I still prefer it all in. It felt like a bigger show when you do so many of these like this. It's just it's weird. Yeah, no, it is for sure. And I'm also extremely curious now to find out like are they going to throw extra pay-per-views in through the end of the year? Because 
I mean, again, as of right now, we have Wrestle Dream. I think the next announced show is Full Gear, which is November 18th. So that's six weeks away. And I believe that is the last official pay-per-view for the end of the year. If that is exactly what happens, fine. Because sure, they've done a lot in a short window, but then they're spacing it out and they're only going to do now one between potentially Wrestle Dream and January. But we don't know whether that's going to be the case or not. So with that said, Chris, uh, let's go ahead and move into our pre-show expectation grades for AEW Wrestle Dream. Whenever we do the grades and we do them together, you get the opportunity to go first. So what is your expectation grade for Wrestle Dream? Uh, B plus. Um, I, I think there's going to be a lot of good wrestling on here, but in terms of like moments, like you said, there's no world championship. There's no international championship. I think Darby winning from Christian could be kind of a moment and Swerve beating Hangman, And then just kind of Danielson, Zack Sabre Jr. will be fun. But the rest of it is kind of like you could put this on a dynamite. Um, so I'm going to go B plus. I agree. Those three matches are one, two, and three for me. Like in whatever order, they're by far the three I'm most mm-hmm. looking forward to. And I do think the Jericho Golden Lovers and Don Callis family, that has potential to really deliver. But the rest of the card could be a dynamite or a collision or a Grand Slam special or really anything else. But that said, those three I'm very excited about. For that reason, because I didn't count, but uh, that's probably less than one third of the card. I'm with you, B plus. I definitely think it can exceed expectations, get to an A minus, maybe even get to an A just because of the quality of wrestling. Uh, Maybe they do some storytelling on the show, which AEW does occasionally, but not consistently. If they add some storytelling elements, that'll be interesting. Also, again, we still have Rampage and Collision to go. We're not going to be able to discuss that in any type of go-home show setting, like uh, in terms of an ultimate preview, but we will discuss what happens on Rampage and Collision, at least as it pertains to WrestleDream, on our AEW WrestleDream Instant Analysis podcast coming Sunday night as soon as that show goes off the air. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention, we will also have an NXT No Mercy Instant Analysis podcast Saturday night as soon as that show goes off the air. It has been quite a night, and I appreciate Vintage Chris Vanini for joining your boy here, the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, to break down Russell Dream. Of course, earlier, I broke down NXT No Mercy from top to bottom. On the way out, allow me to give you a bunch of reminders both about the show and forthcoming episodes. First, let me remind you that the Getting Over Wrestling podcast is all about Defy. So please head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Leave a five-star rating on Apple. Take a little extra time. Leave a five-star written review. If you do, we will read it live right here on the show. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, news, analysis, highlights, all of that good stuff. You also, this weekend, will be able to vote in our pre- and post-show polls for NXT No Mercy and AEW Wrestle Dream. We will discuss the results of those polls on the instant analysis episodes. Please also remember... I happen to love the number five. And I hope you do as well, because for just $5 a month or 50 for the entire year, you can become an official getting overhead. Visit buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. Sign up. You get bonus audio. You get news posts and your contributions directly support the continuation of getting over. In terms of the schedule going forward, the reason we published this episode on Wednesday night is because episode 500 of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast is coming to you on 
Thursday, and there is indeed a surprise in store there. On Saturday, we will be back with the NXT No Mercy Instant Analysis. Sunday, the AEW Wrestle Dream Instant Analysis. And then Tuesday, our WWE Fastlane Ultimate Preview, which tells you next week is going to be loaded as well. Thank you all for listening to this edition of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, signing off for Vintage Chris Vanini and leaving you with just three final words. Bye for now.